Welcome everyone uh, to this panel today. We're happy to host from VSP Vision side. Uh, this panel is going to be about innovations in scaling uh, access to healthcare. Something very important, as I'm sure we all understand. And while South by is all about um, conversations and emerging tech, we're here to bring the healthcare angle to emerging tech. Uh, so first of all, how many of you know what VSP Vision is or have VSP as your vision care provider? So a brand that is, it reaches nearly 90 million Americans that we often maybe overlook or um, don't think about the power of even having vision, the power of our eyes. So um, wanted to just tell you a little bit about uh, our team here, the VSP Global Innovation Center. We look at uh, ways that we can leverage startups, new technologies, insights, and bring that into the fold at VSP. So we look at topics like health access and equity, sustainability, and patient experience. And VSP uh, is no stranger to healthcare deserts. There is an um, initiative called Eyes of Hope, where for many years VSP has been bringing um, eyewear and eye care to healthcare deserts. So this is not new. But now the GIC is looking at this resurgence of emerging technology in the space um, and seeing what startups uh, um, and technology is uh, growing uh, that sector. Uh, so this panel is actually one of our Futurist Reports brought to life. Our Futurist Reports are a series of um, essentially storytelling about what's happening in various spaces. This is our fifth one. We partner with CB Insights, the business intelligence platform, to bring those indicators of what's coming um, to life. And, and so this, uh, this one in particular is on healthcare deserts and the innovations uh, that are, are coming to bear in the world right now. We also have a booth from the Global Innovation Center in the Expo Hall, so I wanted to make sure that you're all aware. Uh, it's, a, it's in the Expo Hall. We're, we're being a platform for new eye care technologies in a way, so every three hours we're rotating through a new experience there. We also have a VSP and U experience. Essentially, if you were a member, potential member, you would go through this experience to understand what are your current vision care needs, and it would help you understand what kind of benefits you need to take care of your eyes. Uh, we also, last housekeeping item before we get started, we also have a connection hike uh, that we are hosting at 2.30 at the Austin Rowing Club here. So if you want to take a break, put your sneakers on, it's a really great way to network, and it's something our team has been doing to get outside and broaden our, our thinking, um, literally uh, by stepping away from our computers and conference rooms. Um, we also have uh, adaptogen chocolates. This is something really popular we did last year. Uh, adaptogens are one of the trends we found in performance vision. And so if you would like one, you can grab it and it has a QR code to uh, our various futurist reports. So one of our team members, M. Cole's holding it right there. So you get a little treat uh, as you walk out. So finally, healthcare deserts. Uh, so one in three Americans live in a healthcare desert today. That's 120 million people. That's more than the number of members of VSP, actually, now that I think about it. 80% of counties fall into these healthcare deserts. And I think one of the questions that came to mind for us at the VSP Global Innovation Center is, wow, there's so many industries that have been able to scale into a desert of some sort. If you even think about fashion and stitch fix and how someone in uh, 
Tuskegee or uh, you know random parts of the country that maybe only have a population of of a hundred are able to to get fashion that's in New York City. If you think about finance and the ways that we can now bank across the world and um, in places where people don't have even access to internet, entertainment, we can watch content literally in the sky. So I don't know if that's a healthcare desert, or sorry, a desert, an entertainment desert, but it once was. Uh, and then finally, food deserts, and that's been um, approached by in many different ways by a number of different retailers. So through the pandemic, we saw growth in D2C and on-demand technologies, and it's all being reapplied today to healthcare deserts. So we have a number of leaders here on various sides of approaching this challenge, um, from kiosks to telehealth to research. So um, I wanted to give them an opportunity to just uh, establish their story here. So you know our story at the Global Innovation Center and VSP and why we are looking at this problem. And I also should say I'm, I'm Ruth, by the way, I head up the Global Innovation Center. And, and so we, have, we are looking at the future of the space. And I, I wanted to hear the story from various members of this panel. So um, why don't we start right here and go down and just share what's your, what's your story? How did you come to be an entrepreneur in increasing access to healthcare? So I'm uh, Shivang Deve. Um, when I was young, my parents would take us to India and I would see a lot of health disparity and poverty. India is a much different country now. So from a very young age, I was very motivated to work at the interface of, of healthcare. And I'm of Indian origin. A lot of us tend to be doctors. So I thought, oh, I'll be a doctor. But when I went to college, you know, I realized like you can do research, you can amplify your impact and, and help more people. And then I realized you can do research and publish papers, but that doesn't necessarily affect the world. You have to like go out into the world and do the hard thing of building the thing and getting it out there. So um, that's kind of my story for the last 20 years is working at translational medicine or translational health and medicine. And I'm the CEO of Planoptica, one of the founders. We make this device, uh, it's called a Quixie. And our mission is to improve access to vision exams uh, because there's one billion people in the world who don't have the glasses they need. It affects seven of the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals, has a cumulative effect on the global economy about $271 billion a year. Uh, and if you got people a $10 pair of glasses, you would solve that. And um, yeah, so that's, that's our story. And we've been working in this area for over a decade. Great. Amanda? Great. Hi, everyone. My name is Amanda Nguyen. I'm a health economist at GoodRx. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, GoodRx is a healthcare marketplace that connects patients to payers, providers, manufacturers to help them get prescription drug discounts as well as telehealth services. Um, so most of you may know GoodRx through our prescription drug discounts or may have even used those discounts. But we also provide a lot of important educational content as well through our platform. And so in my role, I'm a health economist on the research team. So we have an internal team of economists, epidemiologists, public health experts, data scientists. And our task is actually just to create new knowledge, public-facing research in the areas of health accessibility, affordability, and equity. And we disseminate that knowledge in, independently and also in collaboration with journalists, with academics, with um, industry experts as well. And our goal is to hopefully just inform healthcare consumers, um, industry leaders, as well as policy makers as well, um, where there needs to be uh, more focused resources and more innovation in healthcare access. So uh, if I think about kind of how I got started in this space, I, um, I've always been really interested in 
just wanting to help people in the most efficient way possible. And um, I got interested in health economics, which is the study of healthcare markets and um, health behaviors, because health is just an integral part of our well-being. It affects everyone. It affects us every day, and it's also one of the areas where you can make uh, real and measurable change. So if you think about in the last de uh, decade, let alone the last century, the advances we've made in medicine and in public health, it's really remarkable. And so I wanted to be able to create new knowledge to go towards that um, innovation. And through my research at GoodRx, I've been able to kind of point uh, and shine a light on different areas where there's more need. So um, during the start of the pandemic, we published a lot of research around um, where are there uh, lacking resources for testing, for vaccines, for treatments like Paxlovid. Um, we've published a lot of research uh, related to affordability, and in particular, this report that we published on healthcare deserts, I'm excited to talk about today. So. Yeah, well, we're going to come back to the healthcare deserts and really rely on you uh, to set some foundational language. So thank you for that report. It was very foundational to our own reporting out on healthcare deserts. So Howard, I, I'm excited for you to tell your story because last night you framed it as the solve part of your career. So I think everyone would be interested to hear about how you got to that um, time and how you got to OnMed. Yep, thank you. Good morning, everybody. I'm Howard Gruverman. Um, the Chief Commercial Officer at OnMed and a partner at Iron Street uh, Advisors, which is an early stage healthcare advisory group. Um, I'm also a recovering wannabe doctor. I started my career um, uh, finding that population health was an area where I could find my, my jam, uh, find ways to help people um, in the chronic condition areas. Started out, um, so as, as Ruth said, my career has been in three phases. It was the build phase where you wanted to make as much money as you can and build your career and become famous. And then it was your cell where you really need to you know, um, um, move into you know, the, the monetization of what you did. And then now, uh, as I approached uh, my age at where I'm at, it's the solve phase. How do we really solve the problem we've been talking about for 35 years in the healthcare space? Um, so it's really exciting and now with um, you know, the network and people that you've worked with for so long um, and, and the connections, you can bring people together that really can make the difference. Um, I started out on the carrier side for 11 years, so I got to learn operational health care, how doctors get paid, how people um, um, pay hospitals, uh, went out into sales, um, went into the consulting world, um, uh, worked for um, a boutique firm, and then I ran the um, national accounts for Wells Fargo. Started, went to a startup with uh, the gentleman who started WebMD at ShareCare and got to really understand technology, platforms, things like that. And then um, my dream was to put together a, a group of super friends uh, like Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman who understood healthcare and had each had different superpowers to, f uh, to, you know, to come together and find great solutions, kind of like Ruth was talking about that could solve the problems that were, were existing. And there's nothing larger than the rural health um, crisis that we're in today. Um, one of the first portfolio companies we found was OnMed. Um, we walked into the OnMed offices in Tampa and quickly saw that this is a real company that can make a big difference really fast and for real, not like people talk about they're going to do all these great things and three years later you're still talking about the great things you're going to do. Um, OnMed is a, a virtual healthcare station that deploys vitals. It dispenses meds. It can be put anywhere in the world. Um, and it could be put into uh, health deserts, rural areas, underserved areas. 
um, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the applications, but we're on university campuses, we're in rural areas, we're in, in jails, we're in um, community centers, uh, we're employers, uh, providers, so we're a brick and mortar alternative leveraging technology and innovation. Thank so, you. so now you can see that we're, we're set with great panel participants. We just need to take care of the shared language. As, as some of us know who work in the innovation world, uh, a lot of what we do is translate information. But to translate information, we all need to be on the same page about what is a healthcare desert. So I'm going to ask, actually, and then the rest of this conversation is going to go pretty quick. So keep your questions in mind, and we'll have some time at the end for them. Amanda, if you could just briefly share, what's the definition of a healthcare desert? How can you identify one? What are the different types? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think when everyone thinks of like the word, the phrase healthcare desert, you think just somewhere where people can't access healthcare. Of course, there's so many different ways to define healthcare and also access. Um, so what we've focused on, at least in trying to create a measure for it with data, is looking at healthcare infrastructure, which is like the physical resources in a geographic area that people can access. Um, and when you think about like what kind of healthcare, you can think of it across a lot of different dimensions. You can think about it as far as physicians, hospitals, trauma centers, um, pharmacies. But also, if you um, are thinking about like the uh, what resources are available to people. Um, you also have this component of like whether you can access those resources. So for example, most people, or a huge chunk of people have a, a hard time affording healthcare. So you might want access to things to help you afford that healthcare, like for example, community health centers um, and other like subsidized or um, affordable options. So when you think about like what makes something a desert or not, defining that threshold, it, it's also, again, totally dependent on what you're, you're thinking, what question you're thinking about. Um, availability like prox and proximity are two important dimensions you can think about. So there's the supply-demand issue. If you think about whether there's enough doctors in an area to um, meet the local demand, you may have an area that has higher needs, higher needs for healthcare services, so you might need more doctors in that area. But you also have uh, travel time is also an com important component. So um, would you be willing to drive over an hour to see a specialist? Uh, a lot of people might not be able to do that in the middle of the workday. Um, similarly, you can think about you have a prescription to fill at a pharmacy that's 15 minutes away. That pharmacy doesn't have your medication in stock. Do you drive an extra hour to the next pharmacy, or do you ration your meds until it comes back in stock? So those are some of the issues that we thought about. And to set, kind of set thresholds, we, we also look to the clinical literature to think about what's going to be meaningful for the patient. So um, for example, studies show that if you have a traumatic injury and it takes you over an hour to get um, care for that injury, that could affect your likelihood of surviving that injury. So we defined a trauma center desert as a place that took over an hour to get to. So there's a lot of, the bottom line is there's a lot of different ways to think about this question, but really just boils down to whether people can get the care that they need at the time that they need it. Mm -hmm. And so, how, so Howard, how prevalent are these deserts? And when Amanda's talking about the multiple, the pharmacy desert, the vision care desert, you're taking care of a multiple different deserts in, in one yeah. solution. So how, how prevalent is this, and how does it impact the way that you look at scaling? Yeah, I don't think anybody really has a handle on how big it is. We know what we, you know, what we know. So for instance, 140 hospitals in rural settings have closed in, since 2010. There's 1,700 hospitals today in designated rural areas. 
Um, we're looking at areas like uh, there was an article yesterday in New Mexico, 10-bed hospital, serves 4,500 people in about a 5,000 square, square mile area. Uh, they lose about a million dollars every six months. That's the recurring theme that we hear everywhere around the country, and they're dropping out like flies. So we have a lot of um, locations now in, in Alabama, in the Black Belt, in the, in the uh, eastern side of the, of the state, and um, they had 14 hospitals that are closed or kind of uh, collaborated with other hospitals. And um, that's just one thing. We have 13,000 shortage of PCPs in the country. That's continuing to be exacerbated. Uh, it takes people, whether you're in a rural area or even an urban area, almost three months to see a doctor. That's going to continue. And, and people don't understand the cost of this permeates everywhere uh, with, without the, within the community and throughout the community. But I think it's going to continue. Um, people are moving out. Um, COVID definitely uh, had people more moving out to rural areas uh, as they're working remotely. So we're going to have more need with less access. Um, so we have to solve the problem with the things that are coming up, including in innovation technology and partnering together. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not just the uh, sort of poster person or child that you think of that needs the healthcare access, uh, but there is a big component of equity. You almost don't hear the, the word healthcare desert without hearing equity or social determinants of health. Uh, so Shavang, what, why, do we, why do those go hand in hand? What does one have to do with the other? That's, that's a deep question. Um, <laughs> Yeah, let me just layer a few numbers yeah. on to, to Howard. So, um, you know, I'm focused on eye care. Um, with federally qualified health centers, right, there's something like 30 million Americans who don't have the glasses they need. It's like roughly 10% of the population. The global numbers are 1 billion, which is pretty surprising, right? And if one of the big barriers is, is these FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, they don't have a lot of optometrists and ophthalmologists working there. If you look at the American Optometric Association's reports, they've said over the last decade, the number of eye care professionals working at these FQHCs has precipitously dropped. So out of the 29 million patients who go there per year, less than 1% get access to vision care services. But 14% get access to dentistry services. And dental and vision have always been their own kind of insurance. Um, so I think that paints the context of even just one dimension, right? So it's not just shortage of doctors, it's also the specialist, right? If there's a family care practitioner there, they can't necessarily do something with the retina like an ophthalmologist would. Um, and the social determinants of health, that's a, you know, a strong contributor, right? It's, it's like Amanda was saying with uh, transportation. To give you some global health numbers, are here there's 90% of the population lives within 10 miles of a Walmart, which is pretty accessible. Uh, and that in certain communities, let's say it's a village in India, it's not 10 miles is the distance of measure, it's three kilometers. If something's longer than three kilometers, that becomes hard. And why? Because the economics of it, right? renting a car, taking a taxi, taking multiple buses, and spending half a day. So I think these kind of aspects really what drive the, the healthcare deserts. Um, it's also access to information, right, that you can be an active participant in your health, and you can do things to be preventive, right? There's, um, you see this a lot in the international community in global health settings where people have a fatalist view, and they just say, okay, I was born that way. I can't change anything about that. Some of that applies to the U.S., some of it doesn't. Um, so there's these other dimensions other than just the number of doctors, but it's how, how do you get to them, can you afford them, um, what kind of coverage can you get, how, how much does it cost, uh, all these things. Yeah. So actually, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about that international experience yeah. that you, you have bringing Quixie all over the world. Um, just to br bring down this, we kind of defined everything. Now, give, give us yeah. an example of, of 
how you saw social determinants of health abroad or how you saw bringing healthcare access abroad and what you learned from that experience. So the reason we, we developed this technology at MIT and spun it out was we looked at why are there so many people who don't have the glasses they need when you can buy a $10 pair of readers or, or prescription glasses in a lot of these low and middle income countries. And there's four or five major barriers, right? Number of doctors, there's um, distance to the doctor, right, the cost. Uh, there was also the big equipment that's stuck in clinics doesn't ever get out to the patients. And then there's this fifth dimension of like cultural awareness. A lot of people didn't realize that they could be an active participant in their health. And so we decided we can't scale up a million new doctors that you need in these settings. The U.S. has like one ophthalmologist per 10,000 people roughly, and some of these countries have one ophthalmologist per 100,000 or one million, right? So four researchers in Cambridge, Mass. aren't going to wave a wand and get a, mil a million new ophthalmologists, but we could look at technologies to make an existing ophthalmologist or optometrist more efficient. And then if we could try to make it more uh, easy to use, then you could have community health workers use the technology and triage the 80% of easy patients, and that ophthalmologist, that rare resource could be more uh, efficiently used. And so um, when we worked in these settings, what we, we found were these cultural barriers, and we couldn't do anything about it, but we had to work with strong stakeholders we're raising awareness, right, in a culturally appropriate way for that community. But what we could do is develop technologies that they could use to go out, because mm -hmm. that, that was their limitation. They were stuck in the clinic because the equipment they needed to do the exam was stuck mm -hmm. in the clinic. And how do you take those cultural components into account? And especially when we think about scaling, yeah. we often think of how do we do something in a uniform way? So when you think about educating or taking yeah. your product and scaling yeah. it, I mean, you could say that, that it's not just going abroad that's a cultural change, but it's also uh, even within our own country. Yeah, it's um, even, and, and let's, not, let's not even make about the patient, the users who use the technology behave differently and think differently. And if you're in these settings, when we go to these big eye hospitals, let's say in rural settings of, of South India, and you talk to the management, it tends to be male dominated, they say, okay, I'm gonna use this device in a certain way. But if you can kind of build rapport with the nurses who usually are not spoken to mm -hmm. and are shy to speak to, take some time to build rapport, they have different ideas of how to use these technologies in their hospitals to make the, their life more efficient. And so there's mm -hmm. this dimension also of who you speak to there that's, uh, I think, really interesting but not often spoken to. And then the other aspect of your question is user interface, like or user experience. You have to do a lot of end user-based design. Making something here work for this group that's super tech savvy at South by. Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, you have to make it work for someone who does not think about technology the same way you do. And that involves a lot of years of repeating yeah. studies in these settings. I think that, you know, I'll turn it back to Howard because it hits on two things. One, you brought up the provider shortage. And so how do these different technologies and experiences uh, address the provider shortage? But also, we had talked about the human-centered design and the design aspect of of OnMed. So what did you take into account when you were designing OnMed and how do you consider the provider shortage as you go forward? Yeah, I'll hit the design first. So um, it took about uh, eight years to build the first healthcare station and every aspect of the station, whether it was where the provider, um, the clinician was uh, addressing the patient and, this, and the, the location of the camera, the Mona Lisa effect. So when the person was in the station, they felt like there was a presence of that doctor with them, not just a telehealth visit, and it's plus or minus 2% a real size. It was the, the user of journey, um, where 
uh, person might have a third grade in, uh, education or maybe you know a master's degree. It was the same uh, feeling that they went in and pressed the start button. It was the easy button to get started. They didn't have to do anything. It was fogging the glass but keeping it translucent so that they didn't feel like they were you know, claustrophobic. It was the accessibility for the, for the um, a wheelchair. It was the dispensing of the meds and, and what meds are we going to put in there and what does the robot look like. It was the, um, the ability to clean the station within three minutes with technology of blue light, air purification, and antimicrobial uh, surfaces. It was um, on and on, right? Everything had to be thought of through, and I give credit to the founder of the company. They thought through it probably a little too long, but they, they, did, they did a great job of coming up with a, a great solution, um, and, and it's proven it's going to be a constant, continually, uh, continual exercise of bringing new innovation in because things are changing every day. Uh, the IDF in Israel just came up with a pulmonary chair that has the ability to do a 12-lead EKG sitting in the chair without any connections. There's um, you know, new otoscopes that come in so people don't puncture their eardrum. Uh, the, the device you have on the table, um, how do we get that device to people who have zero access to uh, optometrist, ophthalmologist, or any doctor for, for that mm -hmm. case in, in, in big rural areas? So the design is key. The user has to feel like they're not intimidated. They come in. It's easy. They're, they get something when they leave that's valuable. And, and, and they can use, and they can continue to come back. Engagement's one of the toughest things any company I've seen in the, in the marketplace over 35 years has, has to achieve. So design, human-centered design's critical. Um, the other question was? Oh, I know, I, I think it was about design and it was about the uh, practitioner shortage. Yeah. Uh, but I'll, I'll just, I wanna kinda underscore that probably people's ears were buzzing when you said the, the frosted glass and the cleaning of the space. I mean, th these are part of an experience that really make a difference for people. And the, the fact that Onment went, went and took a design-centered approach or human-centered approach to that and not just, here, here's comprehensive, uh, here's a comprehensive exam, but it's also a platform and you can continue building off yeah. of that. So the provider shortage. Yes, yeah, so um, there is, everybody knows there's a provider sh shortage uh, whether you live in rural, frontier, or urban settings. Um, so it was taking technology that was available today, so actuators on the top roof that pull down a stethoscope or an otoscope or high-definition camera or a, um, a blood pressure cuff, pulse ox, temperature, weight, um, putting that in a setting where you can um, give the clinician who's virtual the ability to put their hands on the patient and achieve about 85% of the things that people walk in for just like they're going to a primary care or an urgent care setting, right? So you had to be both. In the more rural areas, you had to think about urgent care uh, and, and primary care. In the, um, in the more rural urban areas, it's more urgent, right? Because the doctor's not there at 8 o'clock at night or on the weekends and things like that. So you had to really understand what we are trying to solve for and what technology or innovations you needed to take care of the larger swath of people out there. Um, and then the hospitals, wh where do you refer? So how do you connect technologically so our EMR or, or referral patterns into the local market? Where's the local hospital? Where's the, local, the, the closest pharmacy? Can you e-prescribe if you don't have the drug there? And can you get it to their house? And can you use Uber or not? Uber might not be in most areas. We're partnering with companies like Starlink. There's not broadband. Broadband's a huge part of the solution, huge. and. The states, every state has a huge amount of money from the federal government to expand broadband. And if we can connect broadband with professionals and stakeholders in healthcare, we can solve the problem faster. 
So that's another technology that solves the problem for, mm -hmm. you know, connectivity for the lack of physicians. Not by itself. None, no one of these solutions that I'm talking about can solve the problem. It's kind of like an amalgamation of all these different things. So technology innovation partnership, mm -hmm. I think, will solve the yeah. shortage. That's very helpful, uh, and I think an important component. You cannot look at healthcare deserts without seeing where some of this, uh, some of the sources or the factors driving that. Um, and so, for Amanda, uh, you know, GoodRx is arguably one of the most well-known um, healthcare desert innovations. And also, I think there's a component of D2C or on-demand consumer behavior. So it's driven by so many different forces. How was that brand trust established, and how did the company approach scaling access in a way that did um, result in brand trust and engagement as both Shivang and Howard were bringing up engagement and translation is so important and it sounds like Rx has done a lot of that. So how did you approach it? Yeah, so um, I think the affordability component of access is, is huge and it's no secret that people have trouble affording healthcare in, in the US. But not only that, is it, it's very complicated. Um, so like a, a question as simple as like, how much does my medication cost? It elicits so many additional questions like, What's a copay? Um, what tier is it on my formulary? <clears throat> is there a, a prior authorization requirement? Is it cheaper at a different pharmacy? There's like a, a billion different questions and also constantly new developments in healthcare. So even as someone working in the space, there's constantly new things that I need to keep track of and I'm pretty sure that's near impossible for most people. Um, so I think a big component of building trust in, in a solution like that is <clears throat> to help make it easier for the, the person as a healthcare consumer. Um, I think I saw a stat in a poll say that over 60% of people think that their medical bill is more complicated than a mortgage payment. So um, it's definitely removing some of that back end like com complexities of the healthcare system and just presenting it a unified, simple interface that makes sense to people. Um, a big component of that is also like helping translate and make improvements with health literacy. So um, a lot of the work I do in research, we publish things to try to help make uh, healthcare a little bit easier to understand, navigating the healthcare system easier to understand. So health literacy is very low, and also health financial literacy is very low. So understanding how to navigate like the cost of health, I think it's like people get surprised by how much their healthcare costs, right? So that was a big component of where GoodRx came in is like just even providing transparency around that. So, yeah. Okay, great. Well, I, I think many of you are familiar. Who's familiar with GoodRx? Has anybody used it before? Yeah, okay. So I was right about arguably one of the most well-known brands. So before we go back to the solutions, let's let's we said we we're going to get a little spicy here on what kind of what's holding us back because access to care it's not a new issue. Uh, we talked about price transparency just now, um, equitable care. Uh, it, it's something that's been going on for decades. So you know what's causing this low velocity of innovation in healthcare? Why is there now suddenly an increased focus on access and equity? 
Um, and actually, you, you better be careful who you hike next to because Shaving and I actually met on a connection hike and now he's on, on a panel. Um, but we met at, uh, on a hike where we were with uh, innovation healthcare professionals who are trying to solve this exact question of why is there low velocity in this space and how can we come together? Because everything starts with a conversation, not an assumption. Um, so we'll start with you, Shaving, so we can get this conversation started. Why is there low velocity in innovation in healthcare? How, how spicy do we want to go? Mild, medium, or I think or, everyone's or ready. They're warmed up. Okay. They're ready. So if I was going to throw a hand grenade, I would say we have this obsession that tech solves everything right now, right? There's other people who've written about it. And one of, and that, that's not the problem. The problem is these healthcare problems are very complex and hard, and it takes long, dedicated effort to have a thoughtful approach that can scale and solve it. And right now, I see in the tech space as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of investment. Most investment goes towards software, right? If you can solve the healthcare problem with a software-based approach. But if you look at a lot of hard problems in the world, there's hardware behind it that takes a lot of investment, a long time to develop to make the software on top of it be able to perform. Examples, self-driving cars. You can think it's all the AI of the car, but it's the LiDAR sensors and all that battery technology. Space tourism, it's innovations there. With e-commerce, it's innovations in server farms. And the same thing with healthcare. When you want to get these complex measurements out of the body to get a good measurement, to then make a good diagnosis and, and action plan, you need to have a good sensor. And there's this fallacy that smartphones can kind of solve everything. And the selfie cam cannot take an MRI right now. Um, so that's, that's my... Uh, Spicy take. Oh, good. You want to? Who wants to layer some spice on? I thought that was right on the money. I think it's um, people think that the software is going to solve a problem, but you have to. It's human-centered design, right? How do people interact with things? Um, the thing I would add to that is, um, it's it's a fight for dollars too, right? So there's only so many dollars, even though it's a third of our yeah. GDP. Um, there's a fight for dollars. What's the priority? What are we making the priority? And it continues to shift. I think just like. Um, the pandemic has changed the focus. I think that's helped healthcare get more um, uh, eyes on it as far as what are the problems that we have to solve. Uh, telehealth, uh, GoodRx has done an amazing job of, of connecting the pharmacy and the telehealth piece together. We're looking at a big issue right now with mental health and how are we going to approach mental health with all these technologies, innovations. Um, so, like, there's competing forces for the dollars. So, how do we? make sure that we, we can solve and scale, to your point, um, in a more effective way and use those dollars efficiently and effectively. Um, but I think, based on what Shebang said, plus the dollars, I think that's really what's holding us back from getting to the right answers. Mm -hmm. Amanda, what about you? The low yeah. velocity of innovation in healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with the other panelists, and I think, um, I think it's thinking about whether your solution is helping the people who need it the most. Um, so I think with this focus on um, software, things that are going to rely on the internet, for example, you have a lot of people who don't have access to good internet. And maybe their experience, even if they do, it's, not, it's going to be degraded by having spotty internet. Um, and so you risk kind of widening health disparities, actually, like the digital divide is a big issue. Um, and so I think you have to think about whether the people that you want to help the most or who need that that uh, service the most are actually um, the ones using it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, to, to get this even spicier, and other, are there are a lot of healthcare innovators here. Are you, is anybody a healthcare innovator who would consider themselves a healthcare innovator in the audience today? 
Okay, so this this is your this is for you. Uh, what are what are some alibis to innovation? And we talk about in, in our team, the Global Innovation Center, alibis meaning like, well, the, the economy is on a downturn. It's sort of like a a reason not to innovate and a response that may not be directly connected to really why we're not doing something. So I would love to hear a story from each of you. What's an alibi to innovation that, that you've heard? Maybe how did you navigate that? And in that way, yeah. some of we can create some camaraderie here in the room. Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll go. So um, to give you background, we before we launched this, we did six clinical studies over six years on 2,000 patients, sorry, across three countries. Um, and I mentor a lot of health tech, translation, medicine entrepreneurs. And there is, we were very rigorous. We published all our studies, went through peer review. But I think the alibi that I get exposed to a lot is people say, oh, we did this internal study, it looks good enough. And it's not a diverse population, it's not a real user setting, and they're trying to launch stuff. And the alibi is that move fast, break things philosophy that tech has, but you don't get, you're not afforded that luxury. It's not ethical to do it in healthcare. Mm. And so I think it's not clinically rigorously testing your stuff and because it's too hard, it's too expensive. You don't want to go through the regulatory pathways, so you pick the, the watered down kind of healthcare approach and uh, it doesn't have long-term sustainable impact. It's a good one. Um, I think maybe something like it's too hard, especially with the U.S. healthcare system is extremely fragmented. And I think thinking that things are siloed and things are immovable. So I think the idea that you can't work across like different players. So I think, for example, GoodRx is partnered with across PBMs, manufacturers on the provider side as well. So I think being able to actually try somehow try to find some um, common ground and incentive, common incentives to align those incentives together, um, it's possible. And I think that's also a huge barrier to, to making change in like this huge healthcare system we have where things are, have been in place for a long time. So Yeah, too hard and you can't see the big picture. Those are good ones. Yeah, I mean, uh, some, some derivations of, uh, of the other panelists. So I think it's, um, it's the Pareto principle, 80% of uh, or 20% of the people really make up uh, the people who are going to change it and getting to those people first because the other 80% are really do nothing for fear of doing the wrong thing. I just keep my job, uh, go along. It's kind of like um, how do I find the faults in what you're telling me so I can shoot it down. Um, and the proper incentives are not there for them to take a chance and move forward. That's why you got to find the 20% the of the people who are willing to take a chance and want to innovate. Um, and then, you know, the other thing Amanda said is, is we don't have to boil the ocean. If we can just make one change, um, earn credibility to get to the next day and the next innovation, um, then we can, um, we can continue to scale. Mm-hmm. And, and Shivane, could you drill down a little bit further on the regulatory hurdles in particular? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of VCs don't like it when you have to deal with the technology that has to go through regulatory approval. But I, I, I think regulations are great. Um, right, they're there to protect the population. Um, but getting FDA, like registering with the FDA or approval or CE mark is a barrier for medical technologies. And it, it, the barrier is that it takes a lot of time and money. Even if you're a class one, 510K exempt, the lowest kind of category of risk, you have to develop this quality management system, you have to put up, build all this infrastructure. And it's for good things and it actually makes you a stronger company, makes it a stronger technology, but it takes time. You know, this takes a couple years of work. Uh, if you do it really cost effectively, you're doing it for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it can be more. And when you get clinical studies involved, the costs go up and up and up. And for resource-constrained startups, that becomes a big 
barrier. And so that what do they do? They shift and say, okay, I'm not gonna make a medical claim, I'm gonna do something like a nutraceutical versus trying to make a pharmacy drug, you know? Um, and I think that's the barrier, it's, it's that cost. And every time, we're in 40 countries, we, we sell in 40, 45 countries. So every time we go to a new country, we have to, we don't have to recapitulate the whole process, but there is a paperwork delay and you have to do that. So expanding access to these low middle income countries, there's always more and more paperwork. And we continuously improve our device. Every time you make changes, you have to do more paperwork. That's all good, but it just, it makes the cycle of uh, innovation a little slower and more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, any, anyone else have anything to add on the regulatory side and ways you might overcome that or challenges you've seen? Yeah, I think, um, so one of the um, benefits that we have is we have a robot that dispenses meds and every state has different laws around telehealth and the ability to dispense meds virtually. So we have to go figure out who's the, in charge of the policy, who, or is it a legal, uh, or is it a law that we have to change? Is it the uh, Board of Pharmacy in the state that's trying to block it? Is the independent pharmacies? So um, there's regulations in every state, and go from one state, it's different than every other state. So having to figure out the landscape to make it more efficient faster is a big hurdle that we've seen. Um, once you go there and show them how it works and that all parties win, uh, it's easier to pass, but there's definitely regulations. So oftentimes uh, kiosks or telehealth are seen as a bridge to care. Um, how, how did, what does that mean and how do you see that fitting into the future of healthcare for yeah. uh, people who don't have access today but also everyday people in the future? Yes, yeah, so there's definitely um, been innovation you called it a kiosk, some people call it pods. Um, the early pods where you walk into a pod and you see a, a, a doctor and it's a telehealth visit. There's nothing different than that. And they call that a healthcare station. Um, then there was you know, the advent of putting a blood pressure cuff. I think where we've gone is with the healthcare station is you can see people and, and take care of 85% of what a primary care doctor can do or an urgent care center um, and bridging that gap it's not the only answer to our problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a variety of things that we have to do in the, in the marketplace. Um, there's several stakeholders that have to step up, retailers, right, have mm -hmm. access to um, seeing people. We work with Goodwill stores, where a lot of people go into Goodwill stores and we're gonna have healthcare stations and Walmart and CVS and Walgreens, everybody's getting into the space, but it's, it's, it's the amalgamation of all the services and how do we coordinate, right? Mm -hmm. The local hospital systems were the one that's 40 miles away. Um, we have a, a station now in, um, in Alabama, in, Lef in Lafette, 421 square miles. There's a fire station and two doctors. The fire station sees 10 people a day. Most of them are hypertensive. They have a 12-lead EKG machine in their lobby. Um, so they're a stakeholder. So it's really kind of talking to principals, pastors, and coaches in the market. You might have to talk to the feed store who sees more people in that community than anyone else. Um, so there's... Uh, it's really an amalgamation and partnership. We're working with uh, a Medicaid uh, provider, believe it or not, um, they are going to put stations in communities um, and give it to people for free, regardless if they have insurance with them or not. And if you walk in and you swipe the card, um, then they will uh, obviously bill Medicaid, but if you don't and you're with another provider or payer company, it's free. Um, those are the kind of things we've got to do mm -hmm. to take down the barriers. And it's not just the healthcare station, mm -hmm. right? It's working with all the other stakeholders. But those are the kind of things we got to continue to push as hard as we can. Again, solve the problem, not talk about it, and not mm -hmm. try to exacerbate. Yeah. 
So I'm going to give a five-minute warning to start thinking about your questions while I, I ask another two or three questions here. Uh, so Shaving, why vision care? Why is vision so important in healthcare deserts, or how, how does it help fill in the blanks when you look at the the big picture yeah. of healthcare deserts? Yeah, like this is you know it's it's when you don't think about vision, you think about things like cancer or heart disease and diabetes. Makes sense. So we the way we got into this, we were looking at the global burden of disease list. It comes out every few years, and it said in 2004, uncorrected refractive errors, not having the glasses you need, was the number 14 cause of disability-adjusted life here. It was behind HIV-AIDS, it was behind diabetes, and a lot of stuff. But it's projected by 2030 to be a top eight, above of diabetes and HIV. And why is it important? Because if you don't have the glasses you need as a child, you fall behind in school. So studies have been done showing that after six years of elementary school, you're at least one year behind. There's these massive studies in China. Uh, for workers, daily wage earners who are like plant working in farms and stuff like that in India, or, or, um, they earn 33% more income. Right? So they're already low income, and this actually changes their trajectory. If you're elderly and you have poor vision, you can't drive, you become homebound, family members have to take care of you, so you become an economic burden. Right? So it affects all ages of life across the spectrum, across the world. So that's why we focused on vision care. That's why it affects seven of the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. And so, you know, getting someone the right pair of clear vision, of glasses to get them clear vision, has these enormous impacts. And you would save the global economy to between 200 billion and 400 billion dollars, right? So it's, but it's incredibly underfunded compared to, it doesn't get that visibility. But for us, it was a cost-effective way to have large-scale economic and health impacts. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you bring up the UN sustainability goals. I was in another panel conversation two days ago where we were talking about how when you have these complicated frameworks and you're boiling the ocean, similarly to what was brought up earlier, uh, let's just do nothing. Well, let's be paralyzed because the frameworks are too overwhelming. And one thing that the UN sustainability goals does well is you pick one, it might be in your core competency as an organization, and it makes it much easier to start making steps and progress versus being overwhelmed by a complicated framework. So kind of pivoting that into uh, one more question for Amanda, and then we'll do a final question here, is, you know, Amanda, you were talking about the study that you published, and uh, I'm wondering from your point of view that one-stop access solution, why is that more complicated? Do you think that uh, the, the on-med approach or the Plan Optica approach, or so taking different approaches of one-stop platform, specializing in vision care. What, what's your kind of point of view on those different approaches? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the idea of um, collaborating across existing resources is really important. So um, the reality is, is that the people who need, uh, who are living in healthcare deserts are going to be also the people who ha lack the means to access whatever infrastructure is in place already. So um, you think about like, what social determinants of health are, are preventing people from, you know, getting regular care, whether it's vision care or seeing a, a primary care provider or specialist or getting, um, getting access to their medications. And so I think the reality is, is that um, you have those, not only the infrastructure barriers, but you also need to help them get to that. So I think it's a, a matter of getting people, where meeting people where they are. Um, and so I think, you know, I think some of the, the solutions that we've, we've talked about today have been really, um, really exciting because it's a matter of getting people into the healthcare system and activated and then helping them continue to, 
to engage with their health in that way, in a different way than kind of what they've been used to, which is maybe just going to see a doctor and then finding out it's too expensive and then not doing anything about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So final question, what should the future look like when it comes to innovating in healthcare deserts and health access? And what should the people in this audience that are part of this conversation today think about do uh, for, from whatever position they stand in today? So what does the future look like and what do you recommend this audience walk away with? Who wants to start? Howard? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a collaboration model. It's the community getting involved in their, in their community uh, of, of health and life. It's p meeting people, like you said, where they are, uh, where they work, where they live, or where they play. Um, it's, we're not going to be able to do it our, you know, ourselves. We have to have other partners um, that are um, there with us. The resources are just not sustainable. And um, I believe that um, if we continue to, um, to move forward in that vein in the partnership world, having all the different stakeholders participate um, will succeed. And, and if not, um, I think uh, that we're going to have a hard time um, solving the problem, especially in the rural markets. Um, and I think the government obviously has to play a part in that. Employers have to play a, pay a part in that. The payers, the providers, universities, I think, can play a huge role. We're working with several universities around the country. They have great resources. They want to help. There's a lot of land-grant schools that can participate that have funding. Um, so those are just some examples of how we can partner in those different markets. Yeah, um, I think that's a great point. And um, I, th I think we've kind of talked about a lot today how um, healthcare deserts are a multifaceted problem and it's going to require a multifaceted solution. Um, and I think you, uh, it's really important to understand the needs of the people you're trying to help and kind of being able to um, come up with a unique solution for those people specifically. Mm -hmm. um, I'll go back to like our mission. Our mission was that we wanted to develop technologies that didn't sacrifice clinical quality because they were being used outside the clinic. That meant innovations in hardware, software, AI, cloud, and, and I think that's the future of healthcare and healthcare deserts is there are gonna be these technologies that get developed. They're gonna take a little longer than just software only approaches and they're going to be able to be deployed there without sacrificing clinical quality. It might not be equivalent to an MRI, but for a lot of other things, I think it will be. And so that is my hope for, for these populations is you're not having a sacrificed level of care. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, we have time for questions before I wrap this up. Uh, there's a microphone uh, right in the middle of the room. If you want, you, if you want to stand up, I think um, yeah, right in the middle of the room, there's a microphone. So if you have a question, feel free to use that. Hi, I'm Dean Bonney. I've been living uh, part-time in Appalachia for 15 years. And, um, and I do that for a reason to mitigate my health risks is one of them. But um, I've also been volunteering with Remote Area Medical for 15 years. And I am very intrigued about what you're doing there. And I look at Remote Area Medical as being a hub and spoke system, right? We get 3,000 people to come in and they get dental, hearing, and vision. And then they also get checked on um, blood pressure and uh, diabetes. 
how do, I mean, and, and then all these hospitals have been uh, closing up at the same time. So as an engineer, this is a very complex systems engineering issue, right? So Hub and Spoke is successful. I'd like to hear how that could be applied towards uh, the telemed situation there. But also in the holistic delivery of services, we can, I can get them, give them glucose monitors, right? It, uh, Apple's gonna put it on a watch here in just a bit and everybody can wear it. But who's gonna use it and where's the food gonna come from that would sustain a better lifestyle from them? And how is that all in your thinking moving forward, having a health desert, a food desert, a banking desert? It's, it's everything, right? Okay. So to, to use your phrase, you can't boil the ocean. So like we tried to do our aspect really well Right, and I, I know Ram, uh, Ram uh, I've gone to their booths and stuff, they're a really cool organization. Um, one thing though is you all, there, there's an education component too, right? It can't just be a, a group of people feel, th this, these are studies and things that have happened in India, they used to do all these pilots and outreach to communities and villages, and what those hospitals realized is those communities then became dependent on this once a year event, and in between that, we're not being proactive about their, hair, their care, in between. So I think that's where the tele part comes in as well, so that you can do those measurements with the equipment when the, the van is there, but throughout the year, people can self-reflect and, and you know, engage through a telehealth uh, uh, aspect. That doesn't answer the, the food desert part, but I, I agree that's a huge part of it. Yeah, um, so um, we, our model is, our business model is we work with sponsors. So government agencies, um, employers, payers, providers, the providers need to increase their catchment to get referral patterns, and they can't build brick and mortar for less than $2 million, and they can't even staff them because there's no doctors to staff them. So your hub-and-smoke model is exactly right. They're able to put a healthcare station with the technology in there um, to identify, triage, take care of, depending on the location, whether it's primary care, urgent care, and then referral in, refer into the to the, to the system or the services that are available. You mentioned FQHCs. We're working with some of those as well to expand their catchment and, and get into the locations you're talking about. The connectivity through uh, EMRs and the data going back and forth is really important to make sure that we're catching things before they become a problem where we understand that they've been to the emergency room 32 times and they're just trying to, you know, uh, get some more opioids or they're, you know, they've got contraindicated. Two hours to drive. Uh, That's right. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, just understanding that there's contraindications on their blood pressure medication and some of the other drugs that they're doing. There's there's all this kind of connectivity. So exactly. so the hub and spoke model is exactly right. It might be a, a tertiary care hospital. It might be a rural area. It might be a, a, just a primary care doc in a location, and and then just putting that all together. Data is really important, um, and then um, just getting access. Healthcare literacy, I think, is another area. I mean, we could talk for another five, five, six hours or days, um, but we got to start with basics. Get people access to affordable care, right, and available. We have to connect them into the right place at the right time for the right reasons, and then we have to share data to make sure that we can perform at our highest with that patient, that person. Um, but we we use sponsors, so the sponsors that lease this this. Stations are those providers, payers, you know, hospital systems, universities, employers, government, um, like the VA or, or DOD. You know, they have the same issues that everybody is ha having in the rural areas. They don't have enough docs. They don't have enough locations to support the VA, to the vets. So those are the, 
It's kind of you know analogous to what you're having in Appalachia or other areas. That's what I do as a job. I work with the VA. So awesome. Thank you for your Thanks. question. Any other questions? Oh yeah. I think. Okay. Hey, Ed. Yeah, thank you for the great panel. So I am a grad student working on machine learning models for prognostication of traumatic brain injury. And, and it felt like today we were talking mostly about non-trauma related things. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I am really curious if you can share a broader perspective on how we can deal with getting access for these underserved communities in terms of trauma, because they have to come to the hospital and if you could just talk about in terms of triage and just dealing with that more broadly. I'll, I'll take a step. So my, my younger brother's a surgeon, and he, he worked in this area, but he wanted to apply it to global health settings, so bring surgery. Um, you know, I know the military has looked at this, like, and, and uh, it's, it's more complex, right? Because in, in those situations, I think the, the, the goal is to stabilize the patient because you can't, the surgery skill set is very, very specialized, right? And having like a million dollar Da Vinci machine is not scalable either, right? Um, so it, it is a complex, a very, very complex problem, but I know people are researching it. There's groups I've, I've mentored in the Boston area as well who are trying to make more portable surgery kind of field kits so you could do surgery in field settings and keep a sterile environment around that wound. Um, but that also still involves having that specialist who knows how to do that kind of surgery, all the other tools, blood, and, um, and, and everything else. So I think, it's, I think it's the goal to aspire towards, but uh, I think we're, we're not very close yet for all those reasons. All right, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up from here. Uh, I just wanted to share a reflection. You know, many times we think of innovators as uh, people who are just like punching holes in walls and poking holes and uh, thro throwing ideas over the fence. And one thing we talk about in the Global Innovation Center is that y we have to go beyond challenging the status quo. Challenging the status quo is just talk and opinions. Anyone can do that. But this is a group of innovators who go beyond challenging the status quo. That means they are understanding what is the real problem, what are the forces, what's the current state they're talking to communities and established players, and that requires a lot of patience and respect for the way things are today, but not the complacency to just keep going, and but to, instead to take one step at a time to solve this major, major issue. So I hope that next year at South By, there's even more content on how we can increase health access. I, I certainly know that VSP Vision and the Global Innovation Center will be here to continue this conversation, but I just want to recognize that it's a group of people that are going beyond challenging the status quo and really brought the Futures Report to life because we can put out all this great content with indicators and trends and technologies, but it's really great to have a conversation. So thank you so much for being a part of it and thank you to our panelists. Thank you.